Morning. Okay, I can hear you guys singing. That was awesome. I don't, I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but I imagine that's going to be a big part of it. Um, John said before, uh, my name, Matt Komar, brand new here as youth pastor, and uh, I am incredibly excited this morning to give you the best sermon you have ever heard. <laughs> Actually... Calling it a sermon is actually a little funny. Uh, it's really a story. Um, I'm, I'm the new guy. So this morning, I feel like, is my opportunity to just share a little bit of my story, um, how I got here, uh, what, what God's done in my life. Um, we are studying Nehemiah, so we're going to take kind of a, a bird's eye view at Nehemiah as a leader and then kind of weave the two together. Before I even start, I did want to introduce you to, well, photos of my family. Uh, my wife, some of you know Robin, um, she's there, and I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, his name is Caleb, and a two-and-a-half-week-old, all right, come on. Kendall, yes, eight pounds, nine ounces at first sighting of her. And uh, she hasn't stopped growing. She's, she's a beautiful little girl. Um, okay, so really three-part three share this morning. Uh, briefly, just about Nehemiah and some of the hats he wore as a leader. Slightly less than briefly about me, my story, um, growing up. And then finish off uh, briefly with a little story about two fishermen who... Got to hang out with Jesus when he was walking the earth. So we're going to do a, such a high bird's eye view of Nehemiah as a leader. I'm just going to tell you this. I'm going to reference some of the chapters in the story. I'm going to ask you to go back and, and verify it um, this afternoon or whenever you find some time. Nehemiah, uh, we know, found himself in this position of leadership for a very, very important project. Uh, we know that about 150 years before this whole story of Nehemiah happens, his people were, um, were overtaken by the Babylonians, and that empire came to Jerusalem, destroyed their walls, destroyed their temple, and destroyed the identity of a nation for all intents and purposes. And the Israelites found themselves uh, in captivity, in exile, um, completely broken as a nation. Uh, the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem, we can say, is really uh, a metaphor or symbolism for the destruction of their identity, their people, and their ability to connect with God. As Jerusalem and that temple was such an important part of the covenant that they had with God as God's people. So he finds himself in this position of leadership, and, um, well, he has to lead in a few different ways. Uh, we read in Nehemiah 2 and 3 as he makes plans to gather materials for the project and as he goes out at night and he inspects the destruction of the walls, he makes plans for the rebuilding of the project and as he delegates workers and sets a schedule for the project, uh, as a leader we can say here that he's almost like an architectural leader. Uh, he leads the building an architectural leader. Uh, that is a fill-in-the-blank. You notice that I've given you lots of fill-in-the-blanks to keep you from thinking about brunch. Uh, we see him first, in, first off as an architectural leader. Uh, that's one hat that he wears. 
in chapter 4. There is some opposition to this project. There are some groups of people that do not want this wall to be rebuilt. There's uh, politically motivated, financially motivated, um, but the opposition is serious enough where they're actually making threats of violence against uh, Nehemiah and his people as they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so we see Nehemiah assigning tasks and deploying his forces, in a sense, in case that were to happen. He's talking about, look, we're going to carry bricks in one hand and weapons in the other. We're going to station people at these sections of the walls and that section of the wall, and if there is an attack, someone's going to blow a horn, and we're going to have rally points. And, you know, like a commander-in-chief, we see Nehemiah as a military leader. Second way that he's called to lead. Um, Third way, in chapter 5, Chapter 5, we see Nehemiah as an economic leader because, look, as they were going through this project and as people from the Israelites were returning to the homeland, they were running into some problems. Um, Some people were in debt. There there wasn't enough food for everybody. Some people were being taxed too much. And it was really hurting some people. And they turned to Nehemiah for leadership. Um, Nehemiah had to figure out exactly, okay, how are we going to go about this so that we're all taken care of? So we see him as an economic leader. Uh, In chapters 6 and 7... The opposition kind of rears its ugly head again, but Nehemiah uh, goes about it not so much as a military leader, but almost as an ambassador or a delegate. He is um, put in charge of figuring out, okay, how are we going to exist as a nation, and you guys are going to exist as your people group here, and so we see him as a political leader. Uh, He had to, um, that's what the word I'm looking for, Um, I can't, anyways, political leader. And last one, that's for architectural leader, military leader, economic leader, political leader. And one final thing, after the walls are rebuilt, he kind of joins up with Ezra and people look to him for guidance on spiritual matters. And he takes the reins as one of his nation's spiritual leaders. You know, this is actually, we're not going to do this. We are going to do this because this is what honor God. That, this is what honors God, and that doesn't honor God, and this is what we're going to do. And so we see him as a, a spiritual leader as well. Uh, one observation about Nehemiah. And I told you I was just going to share briefly about him, and that's all it is. Um, Nehemiah was miserably unqualified to lead in any of those capacities. And, I mean, think think about it. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Homeboy spent his life ladling wine to the king. And actually, we know, we do a little research, we know that cupbearers to the king in the Persian Empire... Uh, they were formally trained in exactly one thing, court etiquette. So Nehemiah uh, was professionally polite, uh, but relevant experience or formal training along the lines of architecture, uh, economics, military strategy, politics, and, uh, and spiritual things, not so much. Spiritually, we actually, he was probably his, may have had more training than other areas. We know we can, um, well, most likely the scholars tell us that he had access to maybe the first five books of what we consider to be our Bible, which is some of his people's history and some of their law. But other than that, no formal training, no relevant experience. But here he is as leader. <laughs> okay, um, let's set Nehemiah aside for a second. We're going to come back to him at the end. I want to take a little bit of time this morning to, to tell my story. Um, 
raised in a Christian home, going to church. Um, and, you know, you, it's one thing to say that you're raised in a Christian home. It's another thing to say that, and, and I can say this, I was raised in an environment, in a household where the pursuit of spiritual truth was a priority. Okay, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just uh, a family kind of going to church and playing church. It was like, no, we were actually trying to figure this stuff out. The pursuit of spiritual truth was a priority. And, um, and just had awesome youth groups, awesome church, awesome youth groups, parents that prioritized the pursuit of those things. Uh, every Tuesday, every Tuesday night, I think we'd have an early dinner around 5.30, about 6. We'd all pile into our family suburban and spend about 30 minutes driving around town picking up my friends. Picked up all my friends, got a suburban full of probably 10 kids. Another 35-minute drive out to youth group. Youth group was two hours. It was a blast. It was awesome. We all loved going. Uh, 35-minute drive back to town. And then another 30 minutes dropping every kid off at their home. Now, that's like a four-and-a-half to five-hour process every Tuesday night. And uh, it's actually funny. My parents are here. They're up there. Mommy and Daddy. Look, my mom said she hated it. My dad said he loved it. And, and, you know, regardless of how they felt about it, they did it every Tuesday night without fail. It was a priority. We're going to be there. We're going to participate because the things that they talk about there are absolutely essential to who you're going to become. So growing up in an environment where it's a priority to pursue spiritual truth, I think there's one thing that happens, um, and that's this. You begin to think spiritually. You begin to perceive things spiritually. And as a young child, I think the first thing spiritually that I began to perceive in myself first, and you know, later on, kind of is more widespread, but I began to perceive in myself, what the Bible describes as our human condition, our human nature. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways to describe that condition. I say it this way, uh, what I recognized in myself, and you may recognize it in yourself, because um, you're human. Thank you. Jeez. <laughs> Took a while. Let me catch on, catch on there. Um, I have this propensity, not that I do it all the time. I was a really good kid, right, mom and dad? I was a really good kid, but I, I, I saw in myself this propensity to do things that hurt myself and hurt others. Human condition. Uh, growing up in church, prioritized pursuit of spiritual truth, I'm learning about Jesus, who was God came and walked the earth, and as he walked the earth, he actually lived a life free from that human condition. Did not have the disposition that, that I had as a human. And, you know, you learn more about Jesus. You, you watch him live and, and everything, and you listen to his teachings. And um, I was in. 
I began to get glimpses, little mini visions for what my life would actually look like if my spirit, myself, was like Jesus, free from that human condition where that I was recognizing in myself that I do things that hurt myself and hurt others. And then another really cool thing happened is as I, were able to part- I was able to participate in mission trips and events and conferences in youth group, uh, I got glimpses of what the world actually might look like if the whole world was free from this human condition. And, you know, you, you learn that the Bible talks about that exact thing replacement spiritually of a condition that has a propensity to do things to hurt uh, and replace with God's spirit that is free from that. Um, And so I was in. uh, I think I was seven or eight when I was baptized. When I was in middle school, uh, my youth pastor gave a talk on worship that changed my life. I don't even remember what he said. I just remember that night really worshiping. God. And so by the time I hit 18, I can say this. Uh, I had an incredibly strong foundation for faith and a pretty well-developed vision for my life that was heavily influenced by God's vision for my life. And those, those two things um, really, cha- I mean, it's a big part of who I am. I'll say it again. By the time I was 18, I had a foundation for faith, and I had a vision for my life that was heavily influenced by God's vision for my life. I had a really good idea about what God had to offer by the time I was 18, Uh, thanks to growing up in an environment where it was a priority to pursue spiritual truth. And I just had awesome youth pastors, by the way. Um, They were cool. Um, so I'm 18, I've got this foundation for faith, I've got this vision for, for life, and I go to college. I, I understand very clearly what it is that God has to offer. Um, I go to college, and I get a little taste of what the world has to offer. Uh, not surprisingly, it happens. Uh, uh, kids, we're growing up, and we have this thing inside of us that wants to evaluate what the world has to offer. Experience that evaluate it. Um, and so my freshman year in college was a struggle. Uh, I, you know, I didn't run away from the faith by any means, but I played football in college and um, D3, it's like glorified high school football. <laughs> You're supposed to say, no, it's not. That's like big time. That's big time. Um, this is falling. As a freshman, we were getting our butts beat. Allegheny College. We were getting just beat so bad by Mount Union College. And fourth quarter, we were down by like six touchdowns. Coach says, Comar, get in there. <laughs> okay, coach. Um, sure, there's like two minutes left. Um, so I get in there and cover three defense. I'm just sitting back, playing it cool. Quarterback makes a terrible throw, and I get an interception. Freshman year, first college. Really, we're going to clap for that? Okay, all right, thank you. Okay, look, um, coach thought that was awesome. All of a sudden, I find myself starting, okay? So here I am, I'm 18, I'm starting with uh, 
on a team of 20, 21-year-old guys, seniors, juniors in college, and they're like, Komar, you're awesome. You're going to come party with us, right? And so influence, all that. Um, and so for about a year, the, the foundation I had for faith and that vision for life that was developed before I was 18 was shaken up a little bit. And I was uh, really living in a way that didn't line up with that vision that had developed. And it was a struggle. But it was only one year. And I, and I just want to say this. I think for, for a lot of people, it's a lot longer than that. I got a taste of what the world had to offer. And within a year, I saw pretty clearly that it was empty. Cheap thrills. Loving things that can't really love you back. Um, satisfaction on a temporary basis only. Um, it didn't take me long to see the emptiness in it. And I adamantly assert that it's because of that foundation for faith that was developed and that vision for my life that was heavily influenced by God's vision for my life that I had by the time I was 18. Look, that, those two things really rescued me out of wasting a lot more time evaluating what the world had to offer. Oh, man. And there was a, a really pivotal moment at the end of my freshman year. I'm 19 at this point, and uh, I'm sitting in my dorm room after I came home from a party um, and just sitting there by myself. Music's gone. Shouting's gone. And I'm in my dorm room by myself, and I just thought, this is empty. This is empty. And, and it dawned on me. This is the first time that I truly acknowledged that foundation for faith that I had and that vision for my life that was developed. It became very clear to me. And I felt in that moment kind of rescued out of it and rescued out of my, what I've been struggling with. And in that moment in my dorm room, I had another thought. And call it a thought. Call it a call. I don't know. It was, it was in my head, and it wasn't from me. But it was this. Matt, your life is going to be about young kids and their foundation for faith. And the vision for their lives that is heavily influenced by God's vision for their life. 19. I knew that that's what I was going to be doing. Uh, I felt like that's what God's saying. That's what you're going to be doing with your life. And I was excited. I said, that's awesome. I can't wait. And I truly couldn't wait. So fast forward senior year. Uh, Allegheny College, I already said that. Senior year, I'm supposed to be, I'm in a computer lab. I'm supposed to be working on my senior composition. Like an 80-page project. Um, anyways. I wasn't working on my senior composition. <laughs> I blame my now wife, Robin, because she came to the same computer lab. So remember, I am. I aming. Anybody? So I'm supposed to be working on my senior project, and in reality, I'm just switching back and forth between I am flirting with Robin, who's on the other side of the computer lab, which really irritates her because she was trying to do her work. And I was like, let's go, let's go, let's go get nachos. Um, so I'm switching back and forth between flirting with Robin and sending resumes out to churches all over the country. 
at 19, I knew what God wanted me to do with my life, and I'm about ready to graduate college, so it's time to line something up. So I probably emailed three dozen churches. 36? Yeah. And I got 36 responses, and it was, one, it was always one of three things. Thank you for your interest. We're actually looking for someone that has relevant experience. Thank you for your interest. We're actually looking for someone with uh, formal training was the second one. And the third one, I got one out of three times. Thank you for your interest. We're looking for someone with uh, proper education. And so it just seemed like God was closing those doors. He had put something in my heart to do. But doors were closing, and I got started to get frustrated. And so, you know, I, I'm sharing this with my parents. You know, I feel like God wants me to do this. I'm getting all these rejections. They say they want training. They say they want education. They say they want, they say they want uh, experience. And so the advice comes in, and it's good advice. Well, okay, start thinking about Bible college. Start thinking about seminary. Uh, when you graduate from Allegheny, that m- might be the next step. And uh, you know what? I, I understand that. I wanted to get after it. I wanted to start the work. And so I didn't receive that advice too well at first, but um, I'm still getting rejected by all these churches. They say, no, sorry, we want somebody more like this. Um, Anyways, December that year, there was one little bright spot of hope, glimmer of hope, and I got a call from a, a guy who was starting a church in Oregon. Hadn't started yet. I think he was... You know, there were a few families in his family room, kind of meeting, saying, we might do this church thing. But he's starting a church, and youth ministry was a priority for him, so he wanted to line somebody up. He called, and we had this phone interview. It was probably an hour long. I remember one thing about that phone interview. He, he, he stopped, at one point, he stopped and asked me, Matt, what is it about Central Oregon that you like and it might be a reason you're interested in coming out here to serve our church. I'm going to tell you my response. I hope it doesn't cause you to lose respect for me. I'm just this transparent of a person. My response was this, and it was true. I said, uh, I actually don't know anything about Central Oregon. Um, I thought your church was in Texas. (laughs) He's our guy. Yeah, right. So, um, but I finished, I, I did finish by saying this. The bottom line is I actually don't care where the church is, Central Oregon, Texas. I feel like God's putting something on my heart to do, and I'm just looking for a place to serve. And I told him that, and I don't know, I don't remember how the rest of the interview went. Uh, I know that he didn't get back to me right away. A, a couple weeks later, I'm in Jamaica on a mission trip. Um, something we had done every year in college. Actually, in Jamaica, I, um, I claim Robin and I had our first date in Jamaica. Although, I should have a picture of that. Um, she would argue, because technically she was still dating our star receiver. <laughs> All fair. Love and war. Um, I'm in Jamaica on this mission trip, and I'm just praying God, you put this on my heart to do. Doors are closing. I'm just getting rejected all over the place. Do you want me to go to seminary? Do you want me to go to Bible college? What is it that you want? 
And I come back from Jamaica with actually a piece about taking that next step. Okay, Bible college it is. That's what I got to do? Okay. It makes sense, actually. It's appropriate and diligent and practical and all those things. So, okay. And I feel okay. I feel fine with that. That's what you want. Uh, so we come back from Jamaica, land in Pittsburgh. I run over to a payphone. 1-800-C-O-L-L-E-C-T. Right? Remember, collect calls. I had to let my parents know I landed safely, right? They're in Cleveland. So I run over to a payphone, collect call my parents. Hey, we landed safely. And just so you know kind of what I feel like God's saying, is he's saying, go ahead, take that next step. Go to seminary. Go to Bible college. So I think I was talking to my mom, and she said, that's good. Great to hear. Do want to let you know, though, while you were in Jamaica, that pastor from Oregon called, and he wants to, he wants to talk. I'm probably going to cry thinking about this. Um, long story short, God opens the door for me to go and, uh, and do what he has put in my heart to do. And so two weeks, she's clapping, all right? That's exciting stuff. So two weeks later, uh, I grad, no, not two weeks later. Two weeks after I graduate from Allegheny College, I pile everything I have into a Saturn in garbage bags. Yeah. Still, garbage bags are great for travel. Um, get in the car with my brother, and we road trip all across the country, and I spend the next five years serving a group of kids, amazed at what God does in lives when Make it a priority to pursue spiritual truth and put yourself in positions where you can see it in action. Uh, some amazing things happen out there, and I don't have time to really talk about a lot of them. Um, but just over and over again, kids getting attached to our group, getting so excited about our group that before you know it, their parents are showing up on Sunday morning who, you know, they haven't been to church since they were teens. They're like, what's all this? What are they so excited about? And stuff like that. Like, Taking a group of 25 kids to the beach, get away, rent a couple houses, and um, spend time talking about spiritual things, helping them get to understand who Jesus was. And, but before we come home, the night before we come home, they say, Matt, we actually, tonight, we, seven of them, we, we need to get baptized. Really cool stuff. God moving. Um, of course, I said, well, call your parents first. Right? Make sure they're on board with this. But um, uneducated, relevant education, anyways, um, untrained, a lot like Nehemiah, pretty unqualified. But God had put something in my heart to do, and uh, He did it. Um, I want to close. Just briefly talking about two fishermen who got to hang out with Jesus. Peter and John. Um, yeah, they're fishermen. They're like the least educated ever. And, um, but Jesus called them to hang out for a few years while he did his ministry on earth. And so for three years, they were on this adventure where they're following him around, watching him fix people, uh, heal the blind, the lame. Raise people from the dead. Confront religious leaders. Needless to say, after those three years, they were never the same. Never the same. 
changed who they were. Um, so sometime after Jesus had died, had been crucified, and had risen again, um, Peter and John, these two fishermen, they're like, they can't go back to just being fishermen. They can't go back to that, so they're never the same. They're actually on, a, they're on their way to a prayer meeting at the temple. And on the way, they pass by a, a man who's crippled and begging, and he wants money, and they say, well, we don't have any money, but here's what we can do for you. They heal the guy. He gets up. He, the, there are people around that see that this man was healed. Uh, crowd gathers, obviously very exciting, right? Crowd gathering. And so Peter and John start talking about Jesus. They start recalling all of the amazing things that he said and did. And he's talking about how he's going to change their lives. And so um, the religious leaders who were there at the temple, not surprisingly, uh, as they had gone to great lengths to try to squash the whole Jesus thing not too long ago, uh, are not happy that Peter and John are here preaching Jesus. And so they go and they arrest Peter and John, throw them in jail, and they're kind of deliberating. What do we do about this? We thought... We thought we'd kind of quelled it, right, squashed it. Um, what do we do? And the, the writer, in, we have this story in the book of Acts. Actually, you know what? Um, my mom told me if I didn't ask you to open your Bibles this morning, she would disown me. So Acts chapter 4, if you have your Bible, go to Acts chapter 4. I do not want to be disowned by my mother. We're, open the Bibles. Um, this story is there. We're going to look at verse 13. The writer tells us, uh, talking about the religious leaders who had arrested Peter and John and put them in jail, uh, talking about them, the writer tells us that now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They were on a three-year adventure, and they were never the same, and they couldn't go back. And meeting Jesus, experiencing Jesus in that kind of real way was all they needed, was all they needed. Whatever was accomplished through them for the rest of their lives uh, in terms of ministry was just God working through them. Uh, I'll close with this. Um, Nehemiah did have two qualifications. He was an architectural, military, economic, political, spiritual leader. Not really qualified to be any of those specific things, but I'm just going to say that um, God's looking for someone to lead this project. God wants to restore a nation. God wants to fix the identity of a people, and he's looking for a leader to lead that project. And as he's reading resumes, uh, he wasn't really looking for formal training and relevant experience. Um, Nehemiah was qualified in two ways. One, he had God's heart. Nehemiah's heart was the same as God's. Nehemiah's heart broke for the things that broke God's heart. When he found out that the walls were destroyed, burned, uh, he mourned, he wept in the same way that God was mourning and weeping as his people had been scattered Nehemiah had the heart. Uh, Nehemiah's second qualification is willingness. He was willing. Okay, my heart's breaking for this. Let me, let me go get after it. Let me go get after it because it's what my heart is. Your heart, God, and I have to. Um, 
I think I'll just maybe leave you with a couple, a couple thoughts, because we're all in different places. Um, some of us, maybe, we're at a place where we just are feeling like, let me actually make it a priority to pursue spiritual truth. Let me put it on the top of my list to figure this stuff out. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe um, you've pursued spiritual truth. You recognize human condition. You understand who Jesus was and what he did, and you bought into that. And you said, yes, there's no other way. It has to be Okay, so you put your faith in Jesus. Um, one thing to have put your faith in Jesus, it's another thing to chase after having the same heart. And so maybe, maybe the next thing is we're going to spend some time in prayer. God, I would really like you to make my heart more like yours. God, the things that break your heart, God, I'd like them to break my heart too. Um, the things that cause you joy, God, I'd like those things to cause me joy. Um, and maybe just ask God to begin molding your heart. Um, some of you are actually there, and God's heart is in you. And um, maybe it's time to start getting after a project of redemption like Nehemiah's. Uh, but not rebuilding walls, but rebuilding lives. God really wants to use you to rebuild some lives. Um, and though you may feel unqualified, lacking relevant experience or formal training, uh, no, that's not what matters to God most. Let me, let me pray. Father God, we just praise you for your power to change lives. And we thank you for your decision to use us to make that happen. God, personally, I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for taking my life and using me to do something that you care about. God, for everyone in here, God, say something to their hearts. Whether it's, hey, try to figure this spiritual stuff out. Or, hey, I'm real and you need to accept me. Or, hey, it's time for you to do something about it. God, speak to each one of our hearts. Amen.